Good evening. Uh, welcome to the importance of church discipline and counseling, or in solving conflicts, depends on what title you have in front of you. Um, in, uh, in your Christian life, does is, is anybody remember hearing very much about church discipline in connection with counseling? No, that's typical. It's like a whole different area in most people's minds. If they know much about church discipline at all, it's something that's extremely rare, and uh, you want to try to avoid it at all costs. Whether you're a member of a church or the pastor of a church, uh, it's a very uncomfortable time in a person's life and in a church's life. And uh, But it's an ex essential part of biblical counseling. So we want to make that clear today in the hour that we have. Let's begin with praying. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word, which gives us the roadmap for everything pertaining to life and godliness, and especially in the area of counseling, which is still not as well known, the Bible itself, for counseling people as it ought to be. We're grateful for the biblical counseling movement that's been going on in this country now for almost uh, 55 years, somewhere around there. So we're, we're thankful, and we Pray that uh, you'll continue to exalt your word above your name, as you say you do in the Old Testament. May you be with us as we cover this delicate subject. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, I think one of the best things uh, I want to do is get this to work. Why is it? What if this battery's dead? Okay, I'll just do it the old-fashioned way. <clears throat> First thing I want to do is uh, give us a big picture from the Bible to give us perspective, uh, to directly address the connection between discipline, churches, and counseling. It's pretty difficult at first. In fact, if I were to do it in a quick way and say something, it would probably bother people, offend people, and send them off in their minds trying to figure it all out. So I'm going to back up into the sky and then start coming down to hone in on the house or the church. So I want to give us a big picture. I think, uh, as I've studied over the years, uh, the big picture about whatever it is you're studying in the Bible is, is really important to have for the parts to make sense when you're focusing on them. So I, I just want to say the notes are simple. There's no blanks to fill out. But the Bible is pretty clear. When it, when it comes to the church, there's a two-part plan. Uh, go out to the world and preach the gospel and make disciples, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Now, um, a lot of churches are very evangelistic-oriented. I know quite a few churches where that's all they do. I mean, everything is about getting people saved. And every ministry going on in the church is focused on reaching the lost. Different events are planned. Different kinds of things are, even gifts are awarded to people who bring friends to the church and 
other sorts of things. There's a big, intense focus on evangelism, and I'm certainly not putting that down. But uh, discipling people who are evangelized, there's not as much attention paid there. And not enough creativity, maybe, and what else could be done to disciple people other than a Bible study group or Sunday school or something like that. But uh, it's really important to God that baptized believers are not left to be infant children spiritually. Uh, it, in, fact, in fact, it is uh, from, a, from a spiritual perspective, it's a bad testimony because when God has children, he expects them to grow up just like when we have children, we expect them to grow up. Something is wrong when you have a baby and it doesn't grow up. When you do tests of all kinds to find out what's wrong with the baby. And oftentimes something's wrong with the baby. There's some, something messed up in their body and their system and they don't grow up. Or they become uh, like my neighbor is a great kid. He's around 17 or 18 years old, but he's about 8 or 9 years old, they say. And a very simple kid. He's great. Comes over every once in a while and wants to know what I'm doing and why. And I tell him why. He says, why? He asks why questions all the time, just like he's 5 or 6. So, um, special, special needs kid. But something's wrong if it's God's kids who are born spiritually, they're supposed to mature. And then we're going to get to that a little bit later. So discipling and save is, is extremely important. Uh, that's right. That doesn't work. Now, discipling and save, in a simple way to put it, is uh, done in three kinds of ways. Uh, begins with preaching and teaching the word, Colossians 1.28. Paul tells the Colossians a summary of his ministry. And he says uh, that we're, that he's, he's intent on, um, let me find it here. His goal is to present every man uh, perfect. And uh, I want to get the whole thing in front of us. <clears throat> Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, that's a lot of stuff packed in that one verse. He's preaching and he's warning. The Greek word for warning there is nutheteo, which is where nuthetic counseling comes from. And it means counsel. It means warn, instruct. Um, and so... There's that public ministry called preaching and teaching, and there's that private ministry, which we call counseling, where Paul talked in Ephesians 20, I'm sorry, <laughs> Acts 20, to the Ephesians, that when I was with you for three years, I brought the Bible to you, the whole word of God, the whole counsel of God, publicly and house to house, publicly and privately. So the ministry of Paul was focused on bringing people into the kingdom, although a lot of times he came into an area after they'd gotten saved through Peter and ministry and John's ministry or Apollos and Priscilla or whatever, and uh, he'd follow up and begin with some believers. Uh, 
but he had to disciple them and had to organize the church and bring some kind of a government and leadership so that he'd eventually proclaim uh, certain people to be elders. Usually on the second missionary journey, he would get into that. But uh, So there was, a, there was an elder-led government at the time with deacons helping, helping and uh, they were responsible to see this new bunch of people coalesce into one. And many people becoming one, having the same mind within them, as Paul says, a number of different epistles. So there's a maturity growing in that body as each individual matures. And uh, in so doing, uh, producing a product that the Father is after. So preaching and teaching the Word is the first thing that happens. But there are times in our lives where, um, like he said there, I warn people, I counsel people too. And I do that with all wisdom that everyone's mature in Christ, everyone's presented mature in Christ. So, uh, counseling is essential to the discipleship program. And um, in Colossians 3.16, we're told that uh, uh, the Bible should be dwelling in us richly. Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. And then in uh, one particular version, it's translated this way at the rest of that verse, so that ye may be able to counsel one another. Other translations use the word uh, uh, teaching and admonishing one another. And admonish is the same word in Euthetea, could be translated counsel. So uh, Paul's telling a congregation that the word of Christ should dwell in them richly. And the richly dwelling word is there to be able, make them able to counsel or to warn, or to instruct, or admonish each other. Uh, most Christians that really get serious about hiding the word in their heart are interested, and I probably shouldn't say this too negative, but many people are doing it to impress people. Many people are doing it to win a Bible contest, you know, that kind of thing. But not too many people that I know of uh, are trying to hide the word in their heart and study it richly and and get to know the Bible really, really, really well. Understanding passages and putting them together and understanding concepts and, and even developing a theology that hopefully is close or accurate for the purpose of, number one, knowing God. Number two, being able to counsel other with the richness of that wisdom that comes from knowing God and knowing his word. There's not a lot of interest in people getting uh, equipped to do counseling and help each other grow. Acts 20, 27 talks about, I have not withhold from you anything needed. And carries the same uh, uh, weight. So then, uh, then we get to the third area, which is church discipline. So in 1 Corinthians 5, if we turn there, show you that uh, an example of church discipline and then we'll explain a little more about how that comes about in uh, a later section here. First Corinthians uh, chapter 5 and verse 9 through 13. That's not right. Second Corinthians. 
isn't it? Second Corinthians. I've got the wrong number up there. Yeah, Second Corinthians five. <clears throat> I'm not sure right now where. What am I missing? Six. Five. What I do is look right past it then, huh? Oh, I was looking at chapter four. I'm sorry. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, notice that, or the greedy swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So it's a warning about avoiding certain people uh, who are sinners uh, has nothing to do with the world. It's associating with sexually immoral people and greedy and swindlers and dollars that are claiming to be believers. But now, he says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? But is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So purge the evil person from among you. He's talking about a certain person in that church in the earlier part of that chapter, and we might uh, spend a couple moments with that uh, a little bit later. So, um, but right now for, the, for, for our point, Paul is making it clear to the Corinthians that they are to judge the people in the church. Now, how does that register in your mind with the common thought that the average Christian believes, judge not lest you be judged. Is the Bible contradictory? Does Paul disagree with Jesus? Absolutely not. Uh, Jesus is talking about a certain kind of judgment that we're not allowed to do and that's judging the motives and intents of the heart. And also when you do judge you're supposed to be judging in the same way you'd like to be judged when you are in trouble. So he's talking about attitude as well as motives because the principle from the Old Testament is God looks upon the heart, man looks on the outward appearance. So we are to look on the outward appearance and judge that. By their fruits you shall know them, he says in that same chapter of Matthew 7. So um, the church is in the business of helping each other grow. And as we watch each other and help each other, we sometimes find... uh, Sadly, it's more frequent than we'd like that there are some people not growing. There are some people not doing what they should do. There are some people who, when uh, the sermon directly addresses their problem or their issue, they don't pay attention. It doesn't seem to affect them. They walk away and come back doing the same sins in the whole week. And even if someone goes to them and says, uh, you're really having a problem here, you know, you better get straightened out. Those people who are gently confrontational uh, get chewed out by the people who have been confronted. So there's a wall between believers, especially when it comes to helping 
one another grow. And so what do you do when that happens? Well, Paul says, uh, my people are sexually immoral and they're not responding, obviously, to the word of God they're receiving through the preaching and teaching or some counseling. Uh, then you need to start some disciplinary procedure. And he suggests, he's not suggesting, he's saying you're not to associate with those people. Now, obviously, they're still considered believers in 1 Corinthians 5. <clears throat> But uh, some, some kind of discipline is happening. And we might say it's similar to maybe the, uh, uh, the Amish and Mennonites who, who um, what's the word, shun certain people because the body needs to make a statement because you didn't wake up to the word of God that approached you about your sin your particular sin that you are wrapped up in and won't listen to the Lord, the Holy Spirit, through various means of preaching, teaching, and counseling. So um, let's back out a little bit and understand how the sacraments affect uh, this whole area that we're talking about. And in order to do that, you got to get into some reform thinking. Uh, reform people have spent uh, a lot of time in theology and uh, dissecting and putting together things from the Bible that I know that before I was reformed in my theology, I didn't uh, understand or get. And one of the things I didn't get was uh, Matthew 16. Um, Matthew 16, they're sitting around the fire, and Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he says, uh, who do people say I am? By the way, that's not the normal kind of sitting around the fire talk you and I have done with people. <laughs> but uh, that's what Jesus does in this confession. And they said, uh, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, uh, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I think the first time I thought about that verse was as a young boy in a Catholic church, as an altar boy, and uh, that was one of the proofs in the Bible that Peter was the first pope, because he was handed the keys by Jesus himself, and was going to run the church, and govern the church, and, uh, and he did so until he turned it over to the next pope, and uh, all that stuff developed. Well, I, you know, left the Catholic Church and became an atheist for a while and then I got saved and started reading the Bible for myself, not, not uh, uh, influenced strongly by any group of any kind and, uh, and began to read the Reformers as well as I was trying to understand passages like this. And they said, and I agree with them uh, to this day, that... Uh, this keys of the kingdom of heaven that Peter was given uh, is talking about uh, the keys as an illustration. Uh, key is what you use to 
unlock or lock a door. And Peter's given the key to open this door to the kingdom of heaven. And Peter was the one who opened the door on Pentecost. He's the one who preached the gospel. And after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit had come. And now the gospel is going to go forth. Because before, you know, after Matthew 28, which we started with earlier, uh, go into the world. But it also said, Jesus said, I want you to wait, though, in the upper room until you receive the Holy Spirit. And that's when the kickoff day is. So when Pentecost come, Peter opened the door, opened his mouth. Gospel went for it. People responded. And so what do we need to do? to get in the kingdom. You know, what do we need to do to be saved? Well, repent and be baptized. And so they repented and they were baptized. And so baptism is actually the sacrament that acknowledges officially that you have entered the church, which is the house of the kingdom, where the life of the kingdom that is now, the kingdom that was in it, is within us, is present in us now, and uh, as Christ is the Lord of our life, and as we're together as a church, that beginning of the discipleship is going to happen. And he's going to uh, make us one, to eventually be with the Trinity, which is one and three, and we'll be hundreds of thousands, and one at the same time. So that's part of that big picture we're, we're breaking down for you. Now, uh, baptism is the sacrament that is the sign that you get in. The door is open, and here's the conditions for coming through the door. You need to be regenerated, which is a work of God, but your response to that is to believe and confess, Romans 10, 9 and 10, and to be baptized. And so baptism became a ritualistic symbol, and... Uh, to be respected and, and to be continually used until he comes again. And uh, some churches don't spend much time with that at all. And so, in fact, they're not really, a lot of churches, evangelical churches, are not big on the sacraments anyway. They're kind of downplayed and not paid much attention to, probably because of an anti-Catholic mentality. You want to do, want to say it's far away from sacraments and rituals as you can but these two are critical baptism and communion these were established by Christ himself as signs uh, just going through the sacrament doesn't accomplish what is meant uh, or signified but it is the sign that's supposed to be used to represent uh, the actual work of grace that's done on the inside so baptism is a sign that you're in, whether you're really saved or not. You're supposed to be treated as though you're saved because you've made the profession and you're acknowledging that you are identifying with Christ and therefore when you say you want to identify with Christ, you have to identify with his church. You, you're, you don't identify with Christ by yourself and you're on your own. Christ never saves anybody to be alone saves them to become a part of the body because the father is building a, a wife for his bride his bride for his, for his son now in Acts 2.42 um, 
they continued in the apostles' doctrine, teaching, met together, and broke bread, it says. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, you have a section of that uh, chapter dealing with the sacrament of communion, or Holy Communion, or Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, or different titles for the same ritual. And uh, in this case, uh, the Corinthians were totally misusing and misrepresenting the very sign that was given to show you have communion. You are in union with. Communion is like com is with. The prefix in Latin is com with. And communion with uh, union. So you're in union with this body of Christ. Well, they're coming to communion and they're not even respecting each other or acknowledging that other people are there, they don't care, they're going to eat all they want, somebody goes hungry. Um, it's a very bizarre situation. And God feels strongly about that because he, Paul tells them, uh, if you would judge yourself, you wouldn't be judged because you don't recognize the body, uh, you're, uh, you don't discern the body, you're drinking and eating judgment on yourself. And that's why many of you are weak and sick or ill, Verse 30, and some have died for sleep, King James says. Uh, you don't want to go to sleep that way. <laughs> it's a dying kind of sleep. And so, um, but when we're disciplined, we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So uh, the sacrament of communion regularly shows that you are still in the body. It's not like you should have communion five Sundays a year, some denominations do, or once a year. Uh, like when I was a Catholic, you had to go, you had to have communion twice a year, minimum, Easter and Christmas. And uh, you need to be in church to have that, unless you were on your deathbed or handicapped or in a hospital or nurse home, the priest would bring it to you where you're alone <laughs> having communion in your room, but that's if you're in a place like that. It's probably the only way it can be done. But bottom line, it's supposed to be a family family ritual. And um, <clears throat> it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I like the Catholic idea. They have communion every Sunday. And um, that shows that you're, if you're conscious of what the sacrament means, you're aware of the fact that I am here with my brothers and sisters. We have the same Savior, the same Lord, and we're together in this. Contender, together in discipleship. We've been saved, and we're now in the process of being discipled the rest of our life, which is a big plan. So in that discipleship, we're going to be uh, enjoying and celebrating and continuing to repeat the sign that we are in communion, in fellowship, in harmony, in unity, in koinonia with one another. Um, now, the flip side of that is either you're in communion or you're out of communion, and that's called excommunication. And so when you're excommunicated, it's because you're out of fellowship and out of communion with the body of Christ. There's something you're doing in your life, and it's in spite of the loving care of the leadership of that church, who's responsible to watch over your soul, to give, give an account of, of, of your soul, according to Peter, chapter 5. Um, 
there's nothing else they can do with you because you won't listen to leadership and the church body will get involved according to Matthew 18 and uh, verse 17 to 20 and on the end of the chapter uh, he says, uh, Jesus says when the king and a servant have that interchange you most of you are familiar with the servant goes out and doesn't forgive somebody and he's been forgiven much and the king has him back in and throws him in prison and he's going to keep him there till he pays everything he owes and then Jesus comment on his parable is that so will my heavenly father do to you he's talking to his disciples not a crowd so will my heavenly father do to you if you don't forgive one another if you don't resolve difficulties conflicts or as we'll find out in other passages um, if you don't live the way you should live like 1 Corinthians 5, you're in sexual immorality and you won't change. You're a, a swindler or whatever else it might be. So uh, Paul is letting it be known, as well as Jesus, that if you're, if you're not going to live as a Christian, uh, then you shouldn't be considered a Christian anymore. Well, how can you not be considered a Christian if you are a Christian and you're in a church that claims to be a Christian church? Well, the only way to make this official like it was official when you came in is to officially remove you. So excommunication is putting you back out. You're out of the body. Now you might really be saved, but it's, it's one of those things where you might really be saved or right, might really be not saved when you get baptized. It's, it's like Jay Adams called it this way. Uh, he said, it's a functional judgment. Something that's done so that you, you can function. We're not, nobody's saying that you really are saved or you're really not saved, because only God knows that. But if you live like you're saved, and you've been baptized and you join a church, which, by the way, if you don't join a church, then you're not living like you're saved. <laughs> That's just one of, the, one of the ways that you show that you're different. You commune in fellowship with the body now. And, of course, you can have relationships with the world, but you don't hang with the world, you don't do things the world does. Your love is in, with the body of Christ, with the Father. So baptism identifies you and gets you in. Communion is a sign that you're staying in, in good graces. Uh, church may forbid you to take communion and still be a member because they're disciplining you and working with you. But if you reach a place where there's no change and you're still unrepentant, then they may come to the decision that you no longer should be considered a Christian. So that's called excommunication and um, now you're out of the church I mean you can still come and attend although most people that get committed don't want to go back there anymore so they try to find another church to go to and usually end up going to another church and nobody does anything about that either so we're not really good in the body of Christ with church discipline either we need to get better for that now to move forward keep us in time Back to the big picture again, make it a different way. God's expect expectations for his children. Uh, we're supposed to eat just as we grow, as a human baby would grow by first eating mother's milk and then eventually pablum. When I was a kid, it was pablum. <laughs> I don't know what it is today. But um, then you eventually eat uh, meat and uh, other kinds of stuff. Well, the Bible talks the same way about our growth and makes a point in Hebrews 6.1 uh, 
this a very serious indictment. Paul, not, not Paul for sure, but author of Hebrews writes that uh, I I want to talk to you about some of the basic things. Although you should be teachers by now, he says in chapter five, near the end of chapter five, you know, I ought to be teachers, but I have to give you the milk of the word. Get there so I can quote it accurately. Amazing how pages stick together once in a while. <clears throat> Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Now, see, just before that, uh, verse 11, about this, chapter 5, verse 11, about this we have much to say. And it is um, <clears throat> hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracle of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So there's nothing wrong with drinking milk, but if you live on milk, you're not grown up, you're a baby. And uh, solid food is for the mature, those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And in the next part, we're supposed to come and look like Jesus, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. So uh, you see the progression there. We're, we're to eat, we're to go from milk to solid food. You can have milk once in a while. You ought to keep drinking milk once in a while. And uh, But we're supposed to eat solid food. First Peter 2, desire the sincere milk of the word that you might grow thereby. And so then we go into maturity. And Ephesians 4, chapter 11 through 16, I want you to see that this passage, very important passage. Uh, not that it's, the previous ones were less important, but uh, <clears throat> contextually it has a lot, lot to say with us. Uh, Jesus is... Uh, in verse 11. I, I like to start at verse 8. Jesus ascends on high and leads a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then it makes a little per, a parenthetical uh, comment. What does it mean? He descended as the one who also ascended far above heaven's he might fulfill all things. Then he gets back 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, pastors and teachers. We're going to go a little farther, but if you, if you set aside the parenthetical interruption there for a moment and flow from verse 8 into verse 10, it, it goes like this. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And he gave the apostles' prophets. See the connection word gave and give. And I, I've used this passage many times. I've talked to people who are Christians, they say, but they don't go to church anywhere. And they don't want to go to church anywhere. They worship God in 
forest or, you know, in their backyard. And the reason why they own the churches is people go in those churches. They're not nice to get along with. Some pastors are jerks and they just want to have nothing to do with organized religion. Usually to which I say, would you prefer disorganized religion? Of course you want to organize religion. But one guy uh, who visited our church said uh, to me, I don't need a pastor. I don't need anybody. I just have God. I just have Jesus. And I took him to this passage. I said, let me make this clear, because you probably don't realize what you're saying. It says that when Jesus resurrected into heaven, he gave gifts to men. He's kind of leaving gifts as he goes, and he gives apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists. And you're down here saying, no thanks, I don't need those things. Thanks anyway. You're actually saying that to Jesus Christ when you talk the way you're talking. Jesus says you need them. And look at why. Um, to equip the saints for work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. To the stature, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we're not longer children. And it goes on. So that we'll be carried away by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Uh, What's it going to take for a Christian to go from a baby to a mature man or woman of God who becomes an example and a model and a servant that's like Christ to other people. It's, it, it can only happen in the context of a church where there is a pastor who teaches the word and evangelism is, is being done and the work and the words that they bring forth to the people are words that have been given to us by apostles and prophets which is called the Bible. It's actually saying this. If you're not going to church and you're not accountable in that church to pastors and teachers and the body because as every joint supplies, as every joint supplies, that's how we all mature, then you're consigning yourself to stay an immature child for as long as you live. And then I add to scripture, which you shouldn't do, but this is what I think. If that's where you're at, I wonder if you're really even saved. Because God wouldn't bring forth a child to leave it retarded, let's say. He, he brings forth children. He doesn't abort children. All new life of his comes forth into maturity. So God expects his children to eat the word, drink the word, mature as they're in the church, and and be one of those joints supplying to the others as well as receiving from the other joints and growing up so that we can look like Jesus, all of us. Romans 8, 29, all things are going, working together for the good so that in verse 29, we're predestined to become formed in the image of Christ. And in 1 John 3, we're going to all be like him when we see him. Uh, and that's, that's a promise for us. So we're on that progression. 
So what does God do when uh, his children disobey? Well, he chastises us. Hebrews 12, 3 through 11. There's a whole section on uh, he only he chastises us because God disciplines those he loves. Obviously then, loving, it's a very loving thing to do when God chastises us when we're disobedient children. He even chastises us when we don't disobey sometimes. It's part of the training we go through. First Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. That's another verse. Um, right now, I'm not remembering it. <clears throat> but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk and not saw the food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Or as mere humans of the translation read. Sounds like the Hebrews, huh? And how many people in our churches are jealous and striving with each other? That think they're mature Christians. Been in a church for 20-some years. Been saved for 30 years or so. And this passage says, you're not even ready for meat now. So what do these people need? That's why he's chastising him in this epistle. Some of the things he writes in this epistle. Because they're still kids, little kids. They're, you know, he pulled my hair out, so I slapped him, you know, back and forth just like little kids. It's, uh, it's embarrassing for the church to present this kind of a, a 